Hi, I'm Ruby Sitar. I'm Tamina Zahiri. I'm Kevin Swiber. I'm Deepa Goyo. And this is the Breaking Changes Roundtable. This week on the show, we discuss Meta's new subscription service. Has the time come for TikTok to become more transparent? Finally, we discuss Starbucks waging war against unions and how life would be with a four-day work week. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that the social media behemoth is launching Meta Verified, a paid subscription service on both Facebook and Instagram. Similar to Twitter Blue, users will receive a blue badge for $11.99 a month on web browsers and $14.99 a month on iOS, plus other features including impersonation protection. Subscribers will receive a number of benefits, including the verified checkmark, boosted recommendations on the Explore page and in IG Reels, prioritized visibility in other people's comments, impersonation monitoring, enhanced customer support, exclusive stickers in IG stories, and 100 free stars per month. What do you guys think? What are stars? What, what I was just wondering that too. I have no idea what a star is. I think strategically, it's very interesting that the fact that Twitter launched their paid subscription, Twitter Blue, and pretty fast, uh, Facebook has, has launched this subscription service. But it looks like these social media platforms really never had any other ideas of monetization besides ads. They're really running out of ideas is what it looks like. I agree. I and I just remember so many people making fun of Twitter for their verified blue check mark and now Meta following suit. I I think it's really frustrating um, knowing creators on both platforms on, on all these platforms who struggle with imp- uh, bots pretending to be them or accounts pretending to be them and Meta and Twitter not really doing anything about those bots and in fact they've created a reason to continue not doing anything unless you're paying a higher subscription or paying a subscription fee. When in fact, these creators are bringing more people, content and ad viewers to their platforms. I I, I don't like this. Yeah, I'm definitely on the creator side of things as well. So I worry about folks not having the same access or same level playing field. Um, as they did before, because now there's a cost associated with your reach, right? So I'm thinking about folks who might not be able to afford that reach. And uh, something else I read is that you need like government issued ID to be able to get that check mark. So that brings up a whole other concern for folks who might not feel comfortable sharing that information, but need that check mark for that reach for some other reason. The fact that yeah, these I'm curious what the extra impersonation protection is like. Um, had could they have been doing a better job protecting everyone this whole time, but they've held it back for you know for payment? What does that really mean, impersonation protection? Um, it's I, I think the details are still kind of foggy on that. I've seen tons of accounts, specifically on Instagram, where they slightly change the Instagram handle or they'll pretend to be an account that's announcing a giveaway winner. And, you know, I personally don't fall for these, but I know a bunch of people must. And as a creator, I can only imagine how frustrating it is to have a scammer pretending to be you. Um, And then to report that account and see that Instagram, after a review, decides that it's not that they're not going to take it down. So I think 
in one aspect, they just, they know people depend on it, these, these accounts and their audiences to make money. And they know that people are going to pay, pay to maintain that status. I find it really interesting, something that Ruby brought up in terms of level playing field for creators on these platforms, because for the longest time, people creating content is, has been the key uh, to the success of these platforms in terms of driving engagement. And now if you're going to limit the reach based on who pays, you're essentially creating a very class-based system and only a certain certain class of people, higher income, who can afford these. And, and these are really, really expensive subscriptions. They are no small, like I think Meta is more expensive than Netflix. So considering Netflix and their, their price point still is something that people want to take for a household. And in addition to that, imagine paying uh, social media fees, which is monthly, pretty high. This is not a price point that everybody in the world can afford because 11 to 12 to 14, $15 is very different. And even in different parts of America, it means different, different value. So in terms of buying power, so it really creates this, uh, this environment where only, only the richer will have the mic uh, and, and not everybody. Yeah, and um, I looked up what stars are, by the way. <laughs> so you you give a creator a star when you really like them. So I guess this is for creators to give other creators a star. It costs $1 to buy 100 stars. Um, so I really... I'm curious to see how how much this will be picked up. But to Deepa's point, I think there are a lot of these, you know, wealthier creators or creators whose main source of income is from these accounts who will pay the fee. But it feels like extortion to me. I mean, fifteen dollars a month. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in some of the top brackets for income in the United States, and I think that's insane. And at this point, um, how many more monthly subscriptions can we really take on? It feels like everything is becoming a subscri- subscription from gym memberships to using your Peloton treadmill. You can't use it without a monthly subscription to now social media accounts. I, I don't know when, when, it will, when will it stop? I think yeah, this- maybe I'm a little cynical, but to like deepest point, I'm curious about their monetization strategy here. Like it seems like an act of desperation to make more money, right? Like these, when social media first got started, uh, people were used to this kind of open communication on the internet that, you know, didn't require any payment uh, and certainly wasn't being monetized in any way. Uh, It was being funded by research institutes. It was being funded by a bunch of different folks, sometimes personal pocketbooks. Um, And then social media came out and there was this sort of natural gravitation towards it. Um, not realizing that we were like pumping a bunch of data into an ad platform, right? And so I think a lot of people were surprised uh, when they found out, oh, hey, like they're monetizing off all of my data. And now it's almost like a smack in the face to say that, yes, we're making all this money off of you. um, But actually, we've kind of spent a lot of money on a bunch of weird things like the metaverse. And now we need more money directly from your pocketbook. It feels a little, uh, feels a little icky to me. Yeah, I think it's very agreed. unimaginative. Uh, you... Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Uh, 
I think it's very unimaginative that there is this concept of like one metric that matters, the OMTM, and everybody decided that it's going to be the the monthly recurring revenue or the annual recovery uh, recurring revenue, and then that causes everything to become a subscription because then you need to show this monthly recurring revenue to your investors because I guess that's what all investors want from absolutely every product, irrespective of what the customer experience or priority is. Yeah. Kevin, you had mentioned uh, the metaverse. Um, and that just made me think of <clears throat> something I read recently about Facebook and how they're not funding metaverse as much lately because of all of this need to increase their revenue. So I feel like Facebook's been on a downward spiral for a while. And this definitely does feel like a desperate attempt. I guess we'll see how this plays out in the meta world. How does the thought of three-day weekends becoming the norm sound? We discuss the possibilities next on Breaking Changes Roundtable. Most companies participating in the world's largest ever trial of the four-day work week are not returning to the five-day standard. Surprise, surprise. And about one in six employees in the study said no amount of money would convince them to return to five days a week. The study, which involved 61 organizations and about 2,900 workers in the UK between June and December of last year, helps make the business case for the four-day week. So one question I have for you folks is, how do you think businesses would benefit from this four-day work week slash three-day weekend? I mean, off the bat, employee retention, attracting talent, and a just happier employee population, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's what the study proved, right? I mean, if uh, if folks are like not willing to return to a five-day standard for any amount of money, then employee retention has got to be skyrocketing there, right? And not to mention their morale internally has to be, you know, really good, which is probably a whole other study about how productivity goes up as morale does. I think the data collected is is really interesting because if you think about it, before the pandemic, remote working had never been at scale. So there was never data to prove will companies continue to be profitable if people were actually remote can people actually be productive being completely remote or uh just are people going to be happier uh and would people be able to collaborate just all these data points were never available at a statistically significant uh, scale and with the pandemic and the and the three years of companies making record profits and people being happier uh it's it, it's kind of interesting that we have statistically significant data to prove that that works. Now we have statistically significant data to say four-day week, weeks work. And uh, it's just fascinating how a lot of the, what we call standard of like, where did this five-day week come from was was really can be traced back to Ford being participant in designing our education system uh, around a manufacturing line and, and making sure people like clock in and clock out and, and are trained in, in that capacity. And I think a lot of those ideals like or that expectation just doesn't apply to the nature of work that we have now. Uh, even an accountant is 
not necessarily a technical resource, but they are working with a lot, a lot of software online on their laptops. And I think just overall, the tool chain has changed, nature of work has changed. And that means that that accommodating and reimagining what work looks like, what a work week looks like uh, for the current workforce is, is really becoming uh, very necessary. Yeah, what's interesting is this is always like historically it's been workers advocating for this, right? Like in the industrial revolution, uh, working hours were were just wild. They were all over the place, right? Like you'd work constantly, uh, and they workers had to advocate for a five day work week um, as opposed to a seven day work week. Um, and so, like, do we see that kind of advocacy going on now for even lesser time, right? Um, I think probably more so in salaried positions, probably more so in in knowledge work. Uh, whereas hourly folks are probably not looking to reduce their time because that's how they get paid, right? Um, but I, you know, I don't think I see the same kind of rallying uh, to say, hey, we 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 can do better on a four day work week as we might have seen in something like the industrial revolution or, or post industrial revolution. I think there's definitely space to get there. However, um, just with our increasing digital world and everybody being so connected and having being able to hear other folks' experiences in different environments. So for example, I was actually just talking to my cousin who's in Pakistan, and she was telling me that she works every other day and that her entire business works this way as well. So her colleagues have similar on-off days and all the work gets done, all of the productivity is there, um, and the business is able to retain revenue the way that they should. But that idea to me, I was trying to fathom like what that would feel like and look like in my life. And I, I'm having such a hard time. Deepa talks about like the nature of work. And I feel like I'm so used to and ingrained to, in my five-day work week that it's just hard to imagine. I think it's interesting too. I, I love the idea of an one day on, one day off. There's so many different avenues we could be taking work. But I think, you know, and Kevin, you mentioned hourly workers. These... This study, in the study, they were working 34 hours for the same salary. So it's definitely interesting to think about increasing an hourly worker's hourly wage for the work that they do, right, to make it equivalent to the 40. Whether or not employers would actually do this is really questionable to me. I think that part of the issue is emotionally people, like Ruby mentioned, are attached to what's familiar. And the economy in the U.S., like this study is from the U.K. and I'm going to speak to the U.S., but I guess globally this applies. The economy feels very fragile along with, you know, investors, board members, executives. I don't think people want to make big changes right now. And then I don't think people want to make a big stake as employees for these four-day work weeks because, I mean, let's face it, we're in a period of massive layoffs across major organizations, people just want to keep their heads down and do their work and enjoy the little free time that we have. Um, but I know Atlassian recently did a similar study. The teams who did it were happy, but Atlassian as a whole didn't adopt it across their organization. So I don't know how much data is going to help us in this case. Yeah, there's an element of internalized capitalism here too, right? Like we're like, if I work four days a week, am I really as productive? Am I doing a, like everything I should be? Like uh, for us who have grown up in this kind of environment, like our identities are associated with how much we work, right? <laughs> to a certain degree, uh, for better or worse. 
Um, and when you take that away, like how does that impact identity? Like your identity has to shift and change a little bit. But according to the study, it sounds like it's been positive for folks. So, I think the shaping, the, the framing of this topic has always been in, in terms of like convenience to the worker. And I think that's, in my opinion, I think that's incorrect. Because if you think about it, when as a worker, if you're saying, I want to go for four day week at the same salary as five day week, what you're essentially asking for is more pay per hour. So you're reducing your hours and you're essentially trying to fix that. And uh, the other aspect is just logistics. So, for example, uh, as a new mom, there's always uh, some or the other appointments to take care of that only happen during the week. So all the doctors are only available nine to five. So nine to five, five days a week, which means that in any case, even in a five day work week, all the people have to juggle other things within the day or take time off anyway to accommodate for those things. And if we had a dedicated day, then I think those things would not actually uh, interrupt our, our actual four-day weeks and people would be able, able to manage their, their work life and, and life just much better. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, so... Time is ticking for one social video app to provide more access to their data. Find out more next. In its attempt to be more transparent, TikTok has launched its API providing access to researchers affiliated with nonprofit academic institutions. Um, from TikTok, they say, we're increasing entry to our analysis API to US researchers affiliated with nonprofit tutorial establishments. Along with bringing extra transparency to content material on our platform, we're desperate to study from the findings of researchers. Um, so this this is kind of fascinating. Uh, not only are they saying like we want to give this data to to researchers, but we want to receive that research back. Um, like, what do you what do you think is really motivating this in TikTok? I mean, there's definitely a push for them to have a better public image with regards to their trustworthiness. I think a lot of folks um, have been sharing a lot of information about TikTok, gathering too much data on users, and then not sharing what they're using the data for or what exactly is the data that they're collecting. Um, so I feel like this is definitely a step toward them just being a little bit more transparent. Do you think it's like a response to people saying we should ban TikTok in the US? They're like, oh, but we'll share data with the US. So how about that? I mean, my opinion is 100% this is a reaction. Um, I don't know if this is a proactive move on their part. I know they're already banned on Texas University as public uh, Wi-Fi's um, because there's concerns about what kind of data they're capturing. So I think in 2021, they were banned in India and that caused them to lose 46% of their user base at the wow. time. Wow. And definitely a huge, uh, huge loss business-wise. So if they were to lose their US user base, because obviously like they're Chinese and uh, there is a lot of politics involved in terms of the decision to ban them or not. Uh, if they were to get banned in the US, I think that would business-wise be be a huge loss. And I think that's not a risk they want to take. And they want to make sure that they are appeasing the right regulators uh, by by showing some footprint in the right direction. It's curious to me that they're doing it this way um, by opening up their API to researchers. And 
I don't know. I guess maybe it's because it's China. They're just not working with these governments to see what would, you know, push them in the other direction. This seems like a very indirect way to support them. Does this, I mean, does this have an impact on content creators, do you think? I mean, like, are, um, are we going to get any research out of uh, the U.S. that might help our content creators in some way, or are they completely disconnected? You know, that's something I was curious about as well, because when I started making like educational TikTok videos, I really wanted to know how well my videos were doing over time. And I really wanted access to an API to do that. Unfortunately, I'm not a researcher from a nonprofit organization. Um, so I'm afraid that I won't have access to that information. I'm really curious to know when I will, because it's relevant to me. Should we start a nonprofit? And... <laughs> I feel like we could do it for the sake of research, the Breaking Changes Roundtable. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the fact that they're asking for the research uh, also shows, like, could be one thing, I'm, I'm totally speculating, uh, could be that because they are a very China-based company, they want to develop a deeper understanding of, of the non-China markets. And the researchers here might have a very different perspective of the same data than what, what they have from, from their lens. I think it's interesting that TikTok is being pinpointed here. I know it's because they're from China and there's this whole thing there, but social media in general just seems like something that and what all of these social media companies are doing with our data should be something that we visit us at a regu regulatory level, in my opinion, um, especially, you know, I don't know, YouTube for kids does not for kids. And nobody is making a cry about that. Nobody is saying, you know, what are what is social media doing to the kids of our generation? Um, but people are in uproar about TikTok. I don't know. It seems like a double standard. Definitely. Um, I would agree that, you know, cybersecurity and transparency, that's something that we should just generally care about. Um, and thinking about why the focus on TikTok, you know, we've kind of all touched on the fact that it's associated with China and we have this like cultural paranoia, even more recently, um, you know, with the balloons. I'm not sure if you all had a chance to talk about that recently, but um, yeah, there's a lot of emphasis and focus on China these days. And I think that's definitely playing a part in um this crackdown on TikTok. So interesting is that like there's a lot of sort of government agencies at play here that we're talking about. But when we talk about social media, the actual content is, is all about the people, right? And the, the people here aren't involved at all in the, the reason why, you know, the U.S. might be, you know, um, suspicious of TikTok in any kind of fashion. So it's it's really strange to have these kind of big social media apps that are really all centered around human beings and the, and the people and have this clashing at the government level. One thing I really like about Pinterest is that they publish yearly trends. And those are, they, they publish this trend report that's usually very useful for designers uh, of all kinds and clothing and colors and interiors. And I, I wish that uh, these social media platforms uh, like Facebook and uh, Instagram and TikTok did something similar and hopefully like if, if that was slightly more detailed so that people not just had to kind of rely on 
it, it this black box idea of we don't know what they do with our data but also get some view into that data and and get some research actually from them uh published every year of like trend reports and uh major uh direction changes uh in in how people are interacting with these apps yeah i think even just opening up to access to some API is a step in the right direction so we can see what kind of data is accessible. Um, hopefully, users uh, in general will get a chance to take a look at that soon. Um, but yeah, I do think that just having that open source like data available to folks is important. I'm definitely curious as to what's going to come out from this with TikTok and the researchers and the type of research that's going to emerge around TikTok usage. There's so much data there with so many different users. So I'm excited to see what comes next. Yeah, we should revisit uh, once you know we start actually seeing the results of this. It'd be good to circle back. Something's brewing between Starbucks and its employees. Find out next on Breaking Changes Roundtable. A company once known for its pristine culture and environment, Starbucks has faced scrutiny for unfair practices. The initial charge to, to unionize began in 2021 when many baristas felt overworked and underappreciated following the, the COVID pandemic. Despite Starbucks' efforts to appease workers and prevent unionization, several locations were successful in their endeavors. What do you all think? Something I'm wondering is like, you know, what what is this obsession with squashing folks from organizing? Like, what is Starbucks' stake in that? They don't want, they would rather everyone be broken apart. You know, the employee base is definitely stronger in vying for more, you know, more money, more benefits, more rights as employees, but broken apart, they... They don't have the same weight behind them. Um, so I think, you know, that's always been why companies are against unionization across their employees. And it's been such a hush-hush term. Yeah, I think, you know, um, <clears throat> I think companies win financially when workers don't speak to each other, right? So even the concept of, of wage and salary and how much you get paid uh, is often a very hush-hush thing at work, right? Um, but not when you're in a union because your wage is negotiated, right? So, like, all of that becomes transparent. Um, and, you know, if companies benefited, felt like they financially benefited more from unions, they would support unions, mm -hmm. right? But I, I truly believe that there is a lot of fear around the organizing of your workforce, uh, and how much power you have in that power dynamic as an employer. I've definitely seen that folks are hesitant, at least organizations are hesitant to support unions because of like the longer term costs. Um, so things like higher wages for employees across the board can cost the company a lot more over time. Um, but I did read that like with UPS and FedEx, that actually was a competitive advantage for UPS, having higher wages for their employees um, decrease their turnover. So they had a stronger workforce compared to FedEx. So it's not all terrible news for organizations. You know, and it almost like looks bad fighting it, especially when it has so much momentum, right? Like there's the scale of this at Starbucks is 260 locations, 40 states, 
right? That's huge. That is massively organized by the workforce and not the employer, right? So like fighting it every step of the way is actually kind of a bad look when it gains this much momentum, I think. Yeah, I think that those 260, and it's even more now, It that's all been within the last couple of years too. So there's so much momentum behind this. And what we're seeing is Starbucks is letting go of employees who seem to have a stake in a unionization activity. Um, but I don't know if, if you guys saw this, a judge um, very recently in Michigan prevented Starbucks from hi- firing anyone who's engaging in union organi- organizing. And so typically if um, you want to make a claim and say you were let go for unionizing, that could take months to years to review. And let's be honest, Starbucks employees don't have months to years to wait to have a, a you know, an appeal reviewed. Now it's making it a lot easier for these employees to get reinstatement if they think they were terminated for union organizing. Um, so I'm really happy to hear that there's, there's some protection for them popping up at the judicial level. Um, but Starbucks is going to appeal it. So we'll see where that goes from here. One of the things I feel about unionization and why corporations are so anti-unionization is because of replaceability. It's much easier to let go of a handful of people as and when they please and replace them versus if a whole workforce were to were to go on a strike or or really take a take a strong stance on anything. So it's really a way of keeping uh, keeping the labor force, the workforce weaker in their power dynamics and making sure that it's very much a one-way dictatorial way of like an authoritative way of, of deciding how much people get paid. And especially in the case of Starbucks, which is in the service industry, uh, we are very familiar with how in America we have the tipping culture. And the whole idea is because the people in the service industry don't get paid enough and now somehow we have to tip to compensate for those lack of wages, which again is not something that corporations want to fix. So in in any in each and every scenario, they want to make sure that they get away with, with lower labor costs essentially. Yeah. And I think it's just this really sad and consistent us versus them mentality um, that you see at organizations where People who are considered employees aren't seen as someone with a stake in the organization um, and and just seen as very expendable people. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm curious to see whether or not we have a cultural shift around this, but I just I just don't think we will. And I think unions are really important to protecting these employees. Um, it's interesting to me, though, there are people who are employees who are also anti-union because there's this rhetoric that unions hurt the employees. And I think there needs to be more education around that. Well, I think the so one of the downsides, um, having having been in the auto workers union in a previous life, one of the downsides is that the union itself becomes this political entity that you then have to navigate as an employee and there's, uh, you know, room for corruption to happen there as well. But I think, you know, that doesn't negate all the benefits that you get from unionizing. Um, somewhat controversial is this idea of um, forming unions in the tech industry. Um, what do you all think about that? One of the things that uh, that Tamina brought 
brought up was around people feeling more invested in the organization. And the whole reason that stock-based compensation was introduced was to have people who were who had more stake, who were more invested in the organization. And it's kind of interesting, especially in tech, which where we, ha- we do have uh, a good component of stock-based compensation. Recently, one of the, one of the biggest investors in, in Google wrote, wrote Sundar Pichai an email asking him to reduce the stock-based compensation at Google, saying that it was too much. So uh, it, it's kind of interesting where it feels like whenever corporations do give that that investment opportunity to their employees, they very quickly feel that they don't deserve it. Yeah, I think it's a race to the bottom. Like how how quickly and how you know, without how how much without notice can we chip away at expenses all over the place? And what is the most expensive thing at most organizations? It's the 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 employee base, and which is really sad because the employees are what keep a company running. Um, and I, I don't I don't know. I I'm pro unionization because I'm pro having a stake at the table and negotiating your worth and coming together and not having things so hush hush behind closed doors but I'm pro transparency above it all um I just I don't know do you think tech unionization is going to become a thing I think that's definitely a topic to consider um, especially with so many things happening in the tech industry lately. We recently talked about layoffs and things like that and feeling like we don't have control over situations around us. So I think that conversation should be on the table. Um, and, you know, with any, Kevin, you mentioned this not long ago, actually, in what you were just sharing, um, with any group of folks that are organizing, there's always this risk of corruption. Um, so that's something to be on top of and keep in mind if these are things that folks are considering. Like, comment, and subscribe to Breaking Changes Roundtable. And until next time, cheers.